Listening to Gore Report, a true crime podcast. podcast. <laughs> Jesus, the awkward. Uh, yeah, and if you're new here, I'm very sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I promise we're not always like this, but we. I kind of just lied. We are always we like are this. We are always like we this. We have moments of seriousness, but we are always like this. <laughs> so if this is your first time listening to us, not only, as Ray just said, we apologize, but we also <laughs> we also welcome you in. Welcome, welcome, welcome to welcome. the Gore family. We hope you're having a good day and a good week and, and a, a good, good life. so guys we got a little bit of business to discuss um if you are listening to us on stitcher we are very sorry to announce that stitcher will no longer be running operations they are closing down shop and you will not be able to listen to our episodes on stitcher anymore however you can listen to us on places like audible apple Podcasts, google Podcasts. Spotify, Spotify, Amazon Music. Yeah. You can find us pretty much anywhere. And if you are a listener of Pandora specifically, that is the Stitcher sister app, Pandora, that they're switching everything to. Mm -hmm. So if you are a Stitcher listener, you can simply just replace us with Pandora. But, you know, you have options. We just wanted to throw that in there for you guys. You have all of the options, my dear. (laughs) But make sure that you choose wisely. Another message from me and Ray Starting today, this episode is going to be uh, pretty rough. This is going to be the start of five weeks of suffering. Five whole weeks five of whole, suffer. Five whole weeks of suffering. That is just <laughs> what we're going to do starting next week. Ray will be having a two-parter. We're not going to tell you what that is yet. And then after her two-parter, I'm going to come up to bat with a two-parter. And they're just uh, they're just not good. So prepare the next few weeks of our show are going to be extremely rough, but I, th- I think we can make it through it. Oh, we're definitely going to make it through it. As I long mean, as we have each other. I mean, re- think back on the time where we covered Gacy and then turn around and covered Bundy right after it. And it was just like... That was our first period of five weeks of suffering. <laughs> that was the very first five weeks of suffering. This will be the second five weeks of suffering. We it's, suffer in between the five weeks of suffering. It's going to ebb and flow like the ocean. Yes, yes. So to continue on with everything today, I want to go ahead and dive into my case, because this is, like I said, oh. hoo-wee. This one is going to be real bad. Like, real bad. This case is one that I've known about for many, many years, and I've always wanted to cover it. It just, it just truly fucks me up. This one truly fucks me up. I've just been waiting for the right time, I guess you could say, and Mm -hmm. I just so decided that this week on this day is the right time. Well, you know what that means, guys. Everybody scoop up your asshole, (laughs) cradle it gently as you place it into the car seat. Make sure the car seat is facing the back of the seat. 
Because you don't want your asshole being ejected out the front window. There's a very high chance of that happening today. <laughs> so, buckle in, because today I'm going to be telling you all about a man named Ed Gein. Holy f- You're not covering it. That's why you were holding it from me, you yes. bitch. Yes, oh. Ed, I've been keeping it a secret. I covered. He would not tell me what he was covering at all. Because normally we'll be like, oh, I'm covering this case. But then we won't talk about it at all. Right. But he wouldn't even give me the name of what he was doing. No, at all. Like, mm. I was giving no hints for this one. No hints. I wanted it to be I'm completely so blind. I'm excited, but not excited. Because yeah. this is going to be Fucking bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely the is going tea, to be bad. The tea was ready. Ugh. So Ed Gein, he's referred to as the butcher of Plainfield or the Plainfield ghoul. And believe it or not, his crimes inspired a few very famous horror movie franchises. Norman Bates from the 1960 film Psycho, Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise, Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs, and even Dr. Thredson from American Horror Story Asylum, all of these characters were inspired in some way by the life and crimes of Ed Gein. Ugh, I just got chills. Brutal is not even the word for what this man did. So this episode is for sure going to be one of the more difficult ones to get through. I promise. So you know what that means. <laughs> I would like to make an announcement that Go Report no longer assumes any responsibility for any damages done to anyone's asshole following this. <laughs> to begin telling you the story of Ed Gein, we must go to the very beginning. We're going to start with some background on his family and his home life when he was growing up as an adolescent. Ed's relationship with his mother plays a very big part in this story. So I think that is a, a great place to start. Let's just break it down at its core. Right. Edward Theodore Gein was born to his parents, Augusta and George Gein, on August 27, 1906 in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Ed was the youngest of two children. He had an older brother named Henry. So I'd like to give you a little backstory into his parents now, because, you know, both his mother and his father had pretty unpleasant upbringings that kind of, you know, we touch on this theme often about recycled abuse and recycled trauma. And it's just surprise. It's very clear in this story, too. <laughs> well, I mean, especially for the time period back then, too. I mean, that was a it, it was the norm, unfortunately. It really, really was. And it still kind of is, sadly, in a lot of ways. But that's yeah. another conversation for a different time. Right. Starting with Ed's father, George. He grew up in an orphanage. Um, when he was around three or four years old, his parents, as well as some of his siblings, all drowned in a massive flood on the Mississippi River. Oh, man. And this trauma stayed with him uh, pretty, pretty heavily. Before he was 15 years old, he had developed full-blown alcoholism, and this sadly stayed with him throughout the entirety of his life. Wow. Ed's mother, Augusta, also had her fair share of hardships growing up. She was raised in a brutally religious household, like brutally religious. Okay. And if I'm not mistaken, her family was made up of Lutherans. Okay. So for those of you that don't know what Lutheranism is, I'm going to read you this small description that I found on the interwebs. It reads, Lutheranism is a branch of Protestant Christianity 
that follows the teachings of Martin Luther, a German monk and religious reformer who lived in the 16th century. Its core beliefs are centered on the idea that salvation can only be achieved through faith in Jesus Christ alone and not through good works or good deeds. Lutherans also believe in the infallibility of the Bible as the ultimate source of religious authority and the importance of sacraments of baptism and communion are really important in the Lutheran faith as well. So this is the religion that Augusta was brought up in and her parents were way extreme about it, like way fucking extreme. Her parents instilled in her at a very young age that the world and all humans, just everybody was Mm -hmm. undoubtedly full of sin and evil amongst other horrible things. And Augusta and her siblings were also subjected to brutal beatings on a regular basis, of course. And this physical and religious trauma stuck with her very much so. Augusta goes on to recycle these horribly extreme beliefs to her family, you know, her children. And it's just not a good situation. It it really clearly fucked her up because when you see the kind of person that she turns into and just how she is, and it's just, you see a little bit of a bigger picture. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. I don't exactly know how Augusta and George met each other or how their relationship began, really. That's unclear. But on December 11th, 1900, the two of them got married in Vernon County. And then the two settled down in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And it became clear to Augusta very soon after marrying George that she had made a mistake. Oh, no. George was a horribly violent alcoholic. Um, He had a hard time holding down any kind of job. Augusta often got angry in her situation, but she felt stuck because divorce wasn't an option to her. Like her religious beliefs were so strong that that's not even anything that she would consider. So she felt as if she had no choice but to stay and be a wife. So over time, Augusta started developing a hatred for not only George, but for all men in general. So keep that in mind. Like we talked about that, too, on the Leonardo Cianciulli case as well. Like how her mother was forced to marry her rapist and then, you know, because of her beliefs and not being able to divorce this guy, you You, know, you got stuck in a bad situation. You got really stuck. Going back to what I was saying about George having a hard time holding down work, his drinking was the cause of that. Right. It pretty much debilitated him entirely. George worked on and off as a carpenter, an insurance salesman, and even a hide tanner, which If you don't know what a hide tanner is, it's someone who works with and prepares animal hide to be turned into leather or different types of clothing, furniture, Mm -hmm. you know, just whatever it may be. So George did all of this, but he couldn't hold anything down for very long because he couldn't stop getting drunk. Right. Eventually, the couple opened their own small town grocery store in La Crosse, but this wouldn't exactly be the most successful business endeavor The sales were barely enough to get them by, and Augusta often found herself to be the only one running the store because George was often too drunk to do so. Right. So this is what the couple did for some time for their source of living. They just, they ran a grocery store together. Soon after her marriage with George, Augusta found out she was pregnant, and on January 17th, 1901, she gave birth to her first son, Henry George Gein. And in the first couple of years after she had Henry, Augusta decided that she really wanted a girl. She wanted to have a daughter. Right. Augusta felt like she couldn't bond properly with Henry because he was a boy. And it would just be four years after having Henry that Augusta became pregnant again. And throughout her pregnancy, she prayed every single night to God, asking him to please give her a daughter. She wished for it and she wished for it and she wished for it. 
So on August 27, 1906, when she gave birth to her second son, Edward Theodore Gein, she wasn't exactly pleased about it. Although over time, she came to accept the fact that she had two sons. You know, she eventually yeah. was like, this is all a part of God's plan. So she came to terms. But she decided that she wanted to raise her sons to be a pair of uh, hardworking, God-fearing individuals. Oh, and if you haven't guessed entirely by what I just said, Ed and Henry had pretty rough and very sad childhoods. Ed and Henry were both very isolated from the outside world for the majority of their lives, if not the entirety of their lives. Ed was described as being very quiet and shy. He was a kid who didn't really talk much, mm -hmm. but he had a love for reading books, and often you would find Ed just reading by himself. As I touched on earlier, Augusta Gein was very, very extreme in her Lutheran beliefs, and she constantly preached to her children that the outside world was full of nothing but evil. Augusta wouldn't let the boys have friends of any kind. She wouldn't let them socialize with anyone on the outside, yeah. just like none of that. Augusta just went above and beyond with her beliefs, and she really forced it into Ed's and Henry's minds <sighs> that every single person and thing outside of their home was full of sin. She would tell them that all the women in the world, except herself, of course, were all whores and, quote, diabolical instruments of the devil, oh end quote. My Gosh. She would tell them that sex or thoughts about sex was completely sinful and of the devil. She really, really brainwashed both of them. Wait, if it's sinful and of the devil, then how the fuck your two sons get there? That's what I'm saying. But that's something <laughs> that's something to know about Augusta, though. She thinks all of this applies to everyone but her. Like every woman in the world is a whore but her. Every woman in the world or every person in the world is a sinner but her. That's just how she was. Oh, man. So she really brainwashed her kids. Augusta even forced Henry and Ed to sit with her every night to listen to her read passages from the Old Testament of the Bible, sometimes for hours and hours. It was very extreme, and you'll come to learn that Augusta was a very controlling and domineering person, like 100%. She was the powerhouse of control in this household, like 100%. And the sad thing is, is that she would have never ended up that way had her parents not done the same exact thing to her. Right. So it's like this common theme that we touch on. It always comes back. It always comes back. Yeah. It's always there, that recycled trauma, recycled abuse. There is not one story... That I've covered, I don't think, where that wasn't a factor. Yeah. To continue the story, their father, George, was really no better. Uh, he never stopped drinking. And he'd often get violent when he drank. And more times than not, George would beat Augusta and his children during his drunken rages. Like, he was not entirely a nice man. So these kids lived a life of complete isolation and extreme mental and physical abuse almost daily. And it's very sad. And being separated from the outside world definitely had a horrible impact on the kids, especially Ed. Yeah. You know, it really stunted them in a lot of ways. Yeah. And you'll see that, you know, we'll touch on it more as we continue, but just something to note. Henry and Ed grew up partially in lacrosse, but in 1914, Augusta and George sold their grocery store and they decided to move. Augusta decided that the entire community of lacrosse was made up of sinners, so she wanted to take her family far away from all of it. She wanted to go 
somewhere more secluded so she could continue to raise her children the way she saw fit with no sinful outside factors. Augusta! (laughs) Sit the fuck down and take a breath, babe. (laughs) The fuck? It's, It's pretty extreme. So in 1914, after selling the grocery store, Augusta and George bought a farmhouse that sat on 155 acres of land, and it was located on the corner of Archer and 2nd Avenue in Plainfield, Wisconsin. And this farmhouse will be the location that Ed will eventually grow up in and commit the absolutely awful and barbaric crimes that made him infamous. Oh, man. So to tell you a wee bit about Plainfield... Okay. It's a very small community. The population was only 680, 700 people in oh, 1914 wow. when Ed and his family moved there. Even today, I believe the population is less than a thousand. Can I move there? Right. Uh, I, I, honestly, that sounds great to me. I'm definitely not a city person. I would love to be somewhere where there's only like 300, 400 people. That right, would be like ideal. Those, <laughs> those small town vibes are immaculate. It, it would it would be the shit for me, for sure. So going back to Plainfield, it is just a very small community. It was small back then, and it's still small today. So Ed and his family got this farmhouse on all of this land, and life continued. Mm-hmm. Augusta loved the new farmhouse because of how isolated it was. She didn't have to deal with the public unless she wanted to. She didn't even have to worry about Henry and Ed running off or seeing other kids. It was just the ideal location for her to Here's raise her family. the dark side. <laughs> the grass is always greener until you see the shadow. Yeah, <laughs> Augusta took full advantage of having her family out in the middle of nowhere. She used being on this farm as a means to really crack down on her children. She continued preaching to them about the evils of the outside world. She continued to tell them that they should never talk to anyone outside of their family because everyone else is sinners. Just all of this crazy shit. If Ed or Henry ever made a friend at school or if they told their mom that they had spoken to someone at school... Augusta would completely blow up on them for it. So she's basically turned into another fucking help me here. Another fucking uh uh She gives me uh mom vibes from Stephen King's Carrie. Oh my god, yes she does. That's the kind of shit that she's on that Augusta is on. Like <laughs> Oh my god. So yeah, if Ed or Henry, if they talk to anyone at school or tried to make friends, they would come home, you know, their young children, they would tell their mom, you know, we talked to this person today or this person. She would just blow up on them. And then she would come up with some excuse to tell the children as to why they couldn't continue talking to them or why they couldn't see them. They were just quite literally not allowed to talk to anyone on the outside, like at all. The lives of both Henry and Ed consisted of doing farm tours at home, going to school, then repeat. They literally knew nothing else. They were only allowed to leave the farm to go to school, and that's it. The boys' lack of social skills caused them to get bullied heavily in school as well. I mean, as you can imagine, they had little to no idea how to interact with anyone. Right. They were more than a little awkward. So, you know, it's sad. Ed also got picked on specifically because one of his eyes was apparently a little droopy. Mm-hmm. Which, fun fact for you guys, I also have a slightly droopy eyelid, and medically it's called atosis. Okay. So Ed had atosis, and sadly, it's just, you know, another thing on the list that the other kids gave him hell for. Ed's teachers described him as a good student academically, 
but they also described him as a very strange and withdrawn kid who would often sit in class and laugh to himself. So this image of early life just keeps getting more and more depressing. Neither Ed or Henry had any friends. They never really had anyone they could talk to. As they got older, their mother Augusta also forbade them from dating or talking to girls or just anything like that. I'm so tired of this bitch. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's pretty bad. And the start of the creepiness of Ed... He developed a very intense kind of almost, I say almost, it is quite bizarre, obsession with his mother. He viewed her as his best friend, Mm -hmm. the first love of his life, even just Ed saw his mother as a complete saint. And he just grew more and more attached and obsessed with her over the years as he grew up. And I think this is a result of the religious trauma compounded with the complete isolation. I mean, all he had was his mother in his eyes. He, he just didn't know anything else. He had his mother and all of her teachings, and then that's it. And he grew up only having that, not having any kind of taste of the outside world. Wow. He was only exposed to his mother. When Ed was 14 years old, he would drop out of school so he could stay at home full time doing chores on the farm, just doing whatever he could to help. Right. He went to school one day and never went back, literally. So now at this point... He's completely isolated. He wasn't allowed to leave the farm to do anything hardly at all now. And now that he's not going to school, he doesn't even have that. So his life quite literally at this point is nothing but being at the farm with his mom. And this is how his life continued for the next 20 years. Wow. So on April 1st, 1940, George Gein would pass away due to heart failure caused by his alcoholism. Mm -hmm. He was only 66 years old when he passed. So after George's passing, Ed and Henry, who are at this point now in their mid to late 30s, they had to start doing side jobs and stuff in town to help make ends meet for their mom in the farm. And something that I learned about this, uh, it kind of unsettled me a little bit, but Mm -hmm. Ed Gein's favorite job to do was to babysit kids for his neighbors. Like... When we get through this and you find out what this man did, Ed it's a Gein. little it's a little uncomfortable to think about. Like him being alone with children, it's just one of those things, but it is odd to note evidently he was really good with children. Ed Gein, the babysitter. Right, that's creepy as that fuck. That is like that those are two things that do not belong in the same sentence. But there's also a really there's an important point of observation with that, though, because, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very creepy. You, Ed motherfucking Gein babysitting kids. Holy shit. But he got along well with kids. Kids loved Ed. And if you think about the way he was isolated by his mom, you'll you'll learn later in the story. Ed really lacks a lot of emotional maturity. He's like his development was stunted because yeah. of how closed off he was. He wasn't allowed to have experiences or to do anything but talk to his mom. So I think that's a display of his development being stunted. It's like he can closely relate more to children and get along with children than adults. Yeah. And he's like in his mid 30s. So I think that just shows how far along he wasn't, you know, up there. You know what I'm saying? So I just thought it was weird. Either way, the thought of him babysitting kids is fucking creepy, especially when you learn what he did, because it's just insane. The other flip side of that coin is that maybe in his mindset he views children as innocence you know and he's like how can they be evil they can't be evil that could be you know part of the mindset 
I mean, right. You just, you just don't know. There's a whole lot of gray area we could touch on, but I just, that's a point that I I'm wanted to make. Speculating. Yeah, we're just speculating. But it, it was just a point that I wanted to make. I just, you can't help but look at it that way because yeah. he totally didn't get along with adults like that. Yeah. Like, even though people in town had a fairly good, you know, feeling about Ed, he didn't have a bad reputation by any means. People saw him as weird mm-hmm. and a little, you know, strange. But, no one really disliked him yeah. until after what he did. It's just something to note that he seemed to really love just being around children. He did really well with babysitting, and yeah. I just think that's fucking wild. <laughs> so a few years later, in 1944, Henry, Ed's brother, he met a divorced woman who had a few kids, okay. and the two of them really hit it off. Henry wanted to pursue a relationship with this woman. Maybe even marrying her or something. You know, Henry, the difference between Henry and Ed is that Henry at this point in his life, he's kind of breaking the conditioning a little bit. You know, he's realizing this really isn't normal. Like being our whole lives here talking to our mom is not normal. What she's teaching us isn't normal. I want to break away from this and do something with my life. So, you know, he decided that he wanted to leave the farm and he just wanted to build something of his own. But he was worried about his brother, Ed, because he was still just ridiculously attached to his mom. Yeah. Ed was almost 40 years old at this point, and he had lived with his mother his whole life. He's been isolated his whole life. So Henry is getting to the point again. He's really wanting to leave and just do things his own way. But Ed wasn't thinking that way at all, like at all. The only thing he cared to do was to be at the farm around his mom. He had no desire to go to the outside, nothing. Wow. Henry eventually confronted Ed about this. You know, he's telling Ed, you know, I met somebody that I really like, and I think we should, you know, leave the farm and and just do something for ourselves. And he expressed all of this to Ed only for it to cause an argument. It caused a really, really bad fight between Ed and Henry. Oh, wow. Henry evidently spoke a little badly about their mother to Ed. And it sent Ed through the roof. Oh. Like he was not okay with his brother just bad mouthing Augusta. He wasn't having it. The conversation didn't really go anywhere. So after the altercation, life kind of continued as normal and Henry kind of, you know, started keeping things to himself a little bit. Mm-hmm. He didn't really see the need to express to Ed anymore about his plans because, you know, they had nothing in common. Clearly, he didn't want to fight with his brother anymore. So right. shit was awkward, intense, but it continued. Right. So on May 16th, 1944, Ed and Henry were burning some vegetation down on the farm, and the fire got out of control. Ed claimed that through all of the smoke, he lost sight of his brother Henry. They were freaking out trying to put it out, and they got separated. Oh, no. So Ed had to rush into town to alert the police that there was an out-of-control bushfire, and he told them that he couldn't find his brother. And very quickly, police and the fire department show up to the farmhouse, and they put the fire out. Now, this next part is odd. Ed claimed that he couldn't find his brother at all, but somehow he practically led police right to his body. When Henry was found, he was lying face down in the mud, dead on the edge of the property. Oh, shit. He appeared to have been dead for quite a few hours. And oddly enough, neither his skin or his clothes were burnt like at all, which would indicate that he hadn't been in the fire actually. And it was noted that the back of his head was covered in bruises, as if he had been struck by a blunt instrument. Oh, shit. But the police didn't question Ed about this. 
They didn't question anything. They just immediately ruled out any sort of foul play, and the medical examiner would officially label Henry Gein's cause of death as asphyxiation by smoke inhalation. So that's all, you know, there was nothing else that came out of that. Um, They hypothesized that maybe Henry had tripped and fell trying to get out of the smoke. And, you know, the bruises came from him hitting his head on a rock or something. Henry was 43 years old when he died and the case was closed. And a lot of people today think that Ed killed Henry, maybe because of how angry he felt during that argument. You know, they had a few months prior when Henry had spoken poorly about Augusta because Ed was not happy about that. Yeah. He couldn't believe that his brother had talked so badly about their mom. And even though there is no concrete evidence tying Ed to Henry's death, and this is pure speculation, I also believe that Ed killed him. So do I. (laughs) And when we, like, I really, really believe that. And when we get through this and you hear the absolutely just unbelievable things this man did, it, it won't sound so crazy to think that. <laughs> Maybe the math is mathing right now a little too well. Another small thing I found too is that at Henry's funeral, Ed didn't really seem bothered by it. He just kind of chilled out and Ed said at this funeral that his brother would quote be nothing but a disappointment had he continued to live, end quote. Whoa. So, yeah, that makes the picture that much more uh fucked up to me but but you know form your own opinion do your own research yeah i think he did it and in the months after the death of henry ed seemed pretty content and satisfied at this point the only people at the farmhouse were ed and his mom so ed had her all to himself now and he was ecstatic about it oh man a few months after the death of henry augusta suffered a stroke And after having this stroke, she never really fully recovered from it. And during these few months after the stroke, Ed went above and beyond tending to his mother. He stayed practically right by her side. He'd only leave the farm if he absolutely had to, which was not very often at all. You know, maybe to grab food or something. But Mm -hmm. 90% of the time, he was right there with his mom. I even read that sometimes he would crawl into bed with her and hold her and coddle her which i guess that's not inherently weird like someone taking care of their sick mom but like i don't know you you just ed gein you you learn about what he did and you just learn it and it's like fuck i mean it's fucking weird i get that but like if it came down to my mom and i had to be her caregiver like i'm grown but when i see my mom laying in bed i'll go in there and you know, lay down on the bed, throw right, an arm right. over. That, hey, man, I love you. Wake your ass up. Let's get up and do something. You right, know? right. That's what so I'm saying. It's I not. Don't, I don't judge him for that. Like that. That's not the suspicious meter. The suspicious meter is the emotional incest that is going on. <laughs> right, right. Very, very, very true. Ed was really, really happy about the time with his mom, even though she was recovering from a stroke. He did everything in his power to take care of her. But unfortunately, only 19 months after the death of Henry, on December 29th, 1945, Augusta would pass away due to complications from having a second stroke. And this absolutely destroyed Ed, like completely destroyed him. It was noted that at Augusta's funeral, Ed was just completely beside himself. I mean, he was sobbing and crying uncontrollably, almost as if he was a small child. And keep in mind that he's almost 40 years old at this time. And I'm not trying to say 
that him grieving is weird or him crying is weird because his mom died. I'm not trying to say that. Goodness gracious, when something happens to my mom, I don't care how old I am. I'm going to be really messed up over it. Oh, yeah, me too. You know, but it was just noted by everyone at Augusta's funeral that Ed's extreme emotional reaction was just a little odd, maybe even misplaced. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, as you said, if my mom were to freaking pass away, I'd just be inconsolable, dude. Right, that's what I'm saying. So everyone just kind of thought that his reaction was, I guess, even more extreme than it should have been. I'm not really sure. And then you compare the reaction he had when his brother died, right? you know, versus when his mom died. I mean, he obviously had two totally different relationships with them, but... I don't really know what to make of that. It's just everyone was off put by it. Do you think it could be that it had more of a vibe that it was him grieving a lover instead of a parent? Honestly, I I don't know. I think more so what it is like he's 40 years old. He's had his entire life of nothing but his mom. Yeah. And being at home like she's like yeah. the only person in the world to him. And he was stunted. A great deal in his development emotionally because of how isolated he was. So I think it's more so not a vibe of him looking at his mom as a lover, but it's a display of his inability to regulate and control his emotions. That's that's something you learn when you're younger, you know, through experience and and through developing properly. And Ed didn't have any of that. He, He spent his whole life on the farm. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. That was, <laughs> that was such a great explanation. I was so into that. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I do try my best. Well, you do succeed, bitch. And after Augusta's funeral, Ed was left all alone in his big, spooky, isolated farmhouse. Oh, God. And this is the point where the story is going to take a drastically drastic turn for the fucking worse. Uh-huh. Definitely for the worse. And if you're someone that's listening to this and you don't know this story or like what's about to happen, then uh, buckle the fuck in. Immediately after the passing of his mother, Ed became consumed with trying to recreate the world that he shared with his mom. Um, No. Ed boarded her room up completely like after her death, so mm-hmm. the room would always be as she had left it. And he never went into the room again after he boarded it up. Oh, wow. And the rest of the farmhouse quickly grew to be filthy. Like it was just covered in trash. He started hoarding all of this junk. He just really let things go. And from this point on, he just deteriorates mentally just more and more. Another thing that Ed started doing after his mother died was reading again. Because if you remember what I said earlier, when he was a child, he loved to read books. And more times than not, you would find him by himself reading. Right. But growing up under the thumb of his mother, what he could read was always very restricted. Okay. But that wasn't the case now. He was around 40 years old at this point. He was alone. So he developed some different interest in terms of what he would like to read. Right. He developed an obsession with reading pornography. Mm -hmm. He started reading various different medical textbooks. More specifically, he wanted to learn about the female anatomy. Yeah, because that's not scary. Ed also developed an obsession with, and I may get this name wrong, but Ilsa Koch. And if you don't know who she is, 
She was known as the Witch of Butchenwald, and she was the wife to the commander that operated the Butchenwald concentration camp in 1937. Oh, shit. Okay. Ilsa Koch was known for her absolute barbaric level of sadism. The things she did gave her the title of one of the most barbaric Nazis in history. She was known to flay pieces of skin off of her prisoners so that she could keep them as trophies. Fuck. It's pretty fucked up. And that that's not even close to everything that she did. I'm not going to give you a full-blown history lesson right now. But Ed became obsessed with her. He was constantly reading about her. Well, you guys let us know if you want a separate episode about this woman. Let me know. I might do. I might cover something like that. Like, Yeah, it's pretty bad. She's called the literal witch of Butchenwald. Wow. Yeah. That is insane. It's pretty insane. She okay. was She was fucked up. So in the year 1947, just two years after the death of his mother, Ed Gein started grave robbing from the local cemetery that his mother was buried in. Oh, okay. Ed was making it a habit to go to this cemetery way late at night when everyone else was asleep, and he would go talk to his mom, as well as grave rob. (laughs) He became obsessed with looking through newspapers each day to read all of the obituaries, He was specifically looking for dead women who were the same age as his mother, women that reminded him of his mother. He was checking obituaries daily. Oh, my God. So that way, once he checks the obituary, he could just go dig up this freshly buried... Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) He was checking obituaries, and whenever he saw a woman that had freshly died that fit the bill of his description, someone that reminded him of his mom, he would wait till way later in the night and go dig them up when the soil was fresh because they're freshly buried. Yeah. Yeah. Ed started taking various body parts and bones back to his farmhouse so that he could then fashion the remains into various pieces of clothing and furniture, which I won't get into it right at this second, but I will touch on exactly what he was making. Trust me, like we're going to get there. Ed would bring entire corpses from this cemetery back to his farmhouse with him sometimes. Mm. Ed's goal was to fashion a female human skin suit. So that he could then, in some way, replicate his mother. Oh, I am physically being affected right now. Like, (laughs) I feel it creeping up my spine. I can't sit still. It's basically, basically, he wanted to design this skin suit so that he could be alive within his mother's skin, per se. Uh, uh, He wanted to be inside uh, of his mother. Uh, 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 fluff fact. Fucking fluff fact. (laughs) Right the fuck now. Fluff fact. Hello, you beautiful, brave listeners. If you've made it this far, I congratulate you. But for me, for me, I am not okay. So welcome to today's fluff fact. A fluff fact being something we use to diffuse a situation when things get a little wee bit too intense for us. And it got intense. (laughs) But this is going to be so left field, but this is the cutest thing and it's been plaguing my mind for over a month. Did you know that a grouping of ferrets is called a business? Oh, what? Just imagine them in their little suits and their, their suitcases just doing business. Just the business of ferrets. <laughs> I'm crying. And now, 
back to today's episode. Going back to the whole female skin suit thing, um, there's also some stuff I read that said Ed wanted to transition into being a woman, uh, which is why he made the skin suit. Um, Either way, I can't say for sure, whatever their reason may be, the fact that this man is wearing human skin and fashioning human skin Uh. is like in a means to recreate his mother is just like, Uh. it's incredibly fucked up. Ugh, no. Ed would even wear skin masks made from the faces he'd flay off the dead bodies. And he would wear leggings made out of human legs. Oh, God. And he would just wear this, walk around his front yard, and pretend to be his mom. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. No. No. Why? And over a period of almost 12 years, Ed kept up with this routine. He continued grave robbing. He continued to fashion clothing and pieces of furniture from human remains, just all of it. But he eventually grew dissatisfied. He's realizing that it's exceedingly difficult to fashion the suit he wants out of remains of already decomposing bodies. Oh, you're dissatisfied? (laughs) Sir! So Ed starts to realize that maybe a fresh body or fresh skin would work better. And you can see where the story is headed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really and not I, good. I don't like it. It was reported that a 16-year-old boy that lived in the neighborhood actually saw some of Ed's fancy-looking Halloween masks hanging up on his wall. The parents of this boy were evidently friends with Ed, and he would take this kid to movies and ball games and stuff like that. So this kid saw these masks on Ed's wall one day. He said they looked like they were made out of leather. And Ed told this kid that they were just some shrunken heads from the Philippines that his cousin had brought him after serving in World War II. Which is super chilling to think about. Like, this kid Uh, is in Ed motherfucking Gein's farmhouse singing these masks hanging up. Because we learn later, you know, of course, it's no surprise. They're not shrunken heads, but rather literal human faces that Ed peeled off of corpses to use as masks. Yeah, it's real faces. My asshole's gone. (laughs) Um, my stomach is gone vocal cords gone just you're done you're done (laughs) so what what we're about to get into now are the murders ed gein said that he only committed two murders even though he is suspected to have murdered more so let's get into that all right ed's first victim was a woman named mary hogan Mary was born in 1899 in Germany, and she moved to the United States when she was only a few years old with her family. Mm -hmm. At the time of her death, she was 54 years old, and she had one child, a daughter named Christine. In 1954, Mary Hogan was the owner of a popular beer tavern named Mary's Tavern. It was located just a few miles outside of Plainfield. Mary was well-known and loved by her community. She ran her tavern for many years, and the locals even lovingly named her Dirty Mary. Evidently, she loved to drink and cut up with the boys, and she had a really laid-back attitude, and she cursed and stuff. So that's just the name everyone had for her, Dirty Mary. On December 8, 1954, it had been another great day for Mary at the tavern. She made a good bit of sales that day, and that night she was closing things up as she normally did. Right. She was ready to leave work and then go home, which Mary lived right behind the tavern. So she's getting ready to close up, and then a man walks in. 
a man that she recognizes because she had seen him a few times before. This man was Ed Gein. Ed walks into the tavern silently, and Mary tells him, you know, hey, you can't be in here. I'm getting ready to close up for the night. Why don't you come back tomorrow? Right. But Ed completely ignored her. Oh, God. He walked right up to her without saying a word, pulled out a 32 caliber handgun, and then he shot Mary in the head at point-blank range, <gasps> killing her instantly. Mary's body fell to the ground, and Ed dragged her out of the tavern to take her back to his farmhouse. Fuck. Mary Hogan was never seen again. And sadly, her murder would go unsolved for three years. It wouldn't be until 1957 when Ed committed his next and final murder that the truth of what happened to Mary Hogan was revealed. And it's so sad to think about, like, her family, her regulars, all of the people that knew and loved her. They just had no answers of any kind until three years later. And that might not seem like a long time. But that's, that's that an is, eternity. That is a you're... hell of a long time to just not know what happened to someone you love so much. And that just breaks my heart to pieces. She was here one day running her tavern, and then the next day she's gone. Yeah. So I'm going to leave that for now, and we're going to now jump forward three years, and we're going to talk about Ed's next murder. This is the murder that got him caught, and this is where shit truly starts to go downhill. And based on the facts of this next murder and then everything that went down, we gather a picture of what happened to Mary Hogan once Ed took her back. Oh, my God. Okay. In the winter of 1957, Ed murdered his final victim a 58-year-old woman named Bernice Warden. Bernice owned and operated the Warden's Hardware Store in Plainfield for many years. She was also well-known and loved by the Plainfield community. Everyone was so used to just going in her hardware shop to get whatever they needed. Bernice was an extremely kind and gentle soul, and she cared about her work and her family. And in the weeks leading up to her murder, Ed Gein had grown fascinated by her. He started visiting her shop all the time and asking her out on dates and stuff, and Bernice always politely declined his advances. It was pretty clear that she just wasn't interested in him like that. God. But Ed didn't give up. He kept stalking her. And on November 15th, 1957, Ed was seen by Bernice's son, Frank, at the hardware shop telling his mother that he would come by the next day to pick up some antifreeze. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's really not good. So the next day rolls around, November 16th, 1957. It was the first day of deer hunting season in Plainfield. And that's something to note about Plainfield, especially in the 1950s. It was a really big hunting community. When deer season opened up, basically all of the men in town were out in the woods hunting. And Ed knew this. I want to go. He, I'm sorry, th that's awful, but I want to go. Yeah, everybody in this time period was just really big on hunting. Like, that first day of deer season hit, like, 90% of the town was just in the woods hunting. Well, it's time to go. Grab your shit. Let's go. But like I was saying, Ed knew this, so he took advantage of the fact that hardly anyone would be in town. That's fucking awful. That is so fucking awful. So on that day, November 16th, Ed drove into town to the warden's hardware shop and he went inside and asked bernice if he could buy a gallon of antifreeze like he had said the day before so bernice poured it up for him she made a receipt and before ed purchased the antifreeze he told bernice that he had to run out to his truck real quick i'm assuming to grab some money or whatever it may be mm -hmm. so he goes outside comes back into the shop and he asked bernice 
if he could see one of the rifles that she had in her window, like her shop window, he was interested in buying it. Okay. So Bernice walks over to the window to grab the rifle and she's talking to Ed very briefly, you know, making sure she has the right gun and she turns her back to him. And when she does this and before she has a chance to do anything else, Ed shot her in the back of her head at point blank range. Oh my God. She died instantly and no one was around to hear the shot. Really? Everyone was out deer hunting. Yeah. And even if you did hear the shot, you just assume that it was from the deer hunting. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, he, he, purposefully did this at this time because he knew he had a better yeah he knew he had a better chance of getting away with it say it with me premeditated as fuck definitely so no one heard this shot no one even knew that bernice was gone until several hours later she was killed in broad daylight and no one was around after murdering bernice Ed drug her body out of the hardware shop, loaded her up into his 1949 Ford sedan, and then he took her back to his farmhouse. Oh, my God. Several hours later, that on that same day, Bernice's son, Frank Warden, returned back to town from hunting, and he went to the hardware store to see his mom. And when he got there, he saw that she was nowhere to be found. The only thing left was bloody marks all over the floor leading out of the door as if something bloody had been dragged out of the shop. Oh, my God. So Frank immediately starts panicking, and he calls the Washara County Police, and he tells them right off the bat that he suspected Ed Gein had something to do with his mother's disappearance. He told the police that just the day before, he witnessed Ed telling his mother that he was going to come back the next day and buy antifreeze. Right. So the police got to the hardware shop very quickly, and they began their search. And sure enough... They found a receipt for antifreeze that was dated for that day, and it was in Ed Gein's name. So the police now have their suspect. Ed Gein was arrested that same evening at a local grocery store, and the Washara County Police continued their investigation. It would be that night that law enforcement went to Ed's farmhouse, and no one, I mean no one, was prepared for what was about to be discovered. When police officers got to Ed's farmhouse, They noticed that it was eerily dark. And I don't know if I made this point earlier in the episode, but this farmhouse didn't have electricity. They didn't have electricity. They were were pioneering that bitch. Right. And it's dark. It's nighttime. And they pull up to this farmhouse. And if you haven't seen a picture of it, I'll post a picture in our photo dump. But I mean, it's creepy looking. So they pull up. It's dark. There's no electricity. It's just like it's a whole bunch of fuck that. (laughs) I'm getting like House of a Thousand Corpses vibes. The police started by walking around the perimeter of the home with flashlights. They tried getting into the home, but all of the doors were locked. So this led them to walk around back to Ed's shed. It was a shed that he called the summer kitchen. Once they got into the shed, the officers are just fumbling around in the dark with their flashlights. And then one of the officers shines their light a little upwards towards the ceiling. Oh, God. And this is where he sees the nude and gutted corpse of Bernice Warden. She was hanging upside down from the rafters by an iron bar that was shoved through both of her ankles and her hands were tied with rope. Bernice was brutally decapitated and she was cut open from her sternum to her pelvis. She was completely gutted and butchered like a deer. Yep, that's uh, that's, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibes right there. That's... It is fucking um, horrific. 
It is absolutely horrific. I, wow. Just wow. So when the officers saw this and they realized what it was, they ran outside where they started crying and uncontrollably vomiting, and they called for backup. When police started searching the inside of Ed's farmhouse, they found a series of absolutely disgusting trophies that Ed had fashioned over the years from human remains. So now, I'm going to tell you everything that was found in Ed's farmhouse. Oh, God. Okay, so this part is kind of infamous, so I, I do know a little bit about what was found, but I don't know all of it, so lay it on me. Buckle up. Lay it on me. <laughs> I'll take two fuck me up, fams. Police found a lampshade that was fashioned from human skin, a pair of work gloves that were fashioned from human hands, 12 face masks that were hanging on Ed's bedroom wall. These masks were the faces of women that he flayed off of their skulls, chairs that were upholstered with human skin, a jar containing several human noses, a basket made from human skin, 12 human skulls, some of which were attached to Ed's bedpost. The decapitated head and bones of Mary Hogan, her face was found in a paper bag. Soup bowls made of human skulls. A corset made from the entire torso of a woman with breasts still attached. Leggings made from the leg skin of a corpse. A box full of several female genitalia that were severed. Some of them had been painted and they were wrapped in ribbons and bows a shade pool for a window that was fashioned out of human lips, and a belt that was fashioned from nipples, female nipples. My man. My man. I just look up and you look fucking devastated. Um. I, t- I told you, like, I'm laughing out of anxiety, but, like, I this is this is seriously really bad. This is This is a crime... That truly scarred America. It permanently imprinted modern day horror culture, like completely. I had heard um, one of the items. Now, my brain kind of shut off midway because I couldn't process properly (laughs) all of the shit that this man made out of human remains. But didn't he like make a wallet, too, at one point? I didn't find that in my research, but... He had a lot of shit. I mean, who's to say he didn't make a wallet of some sort? I mean, that's very much a possibility. I just went with direct records that I could find of what was found, and that's what I included. But, I mean, there's no telling. Somebody let me know. Somebody let me know in the comments. Somebody let me know because that, you know what? I know Amazon was not a thing back then, but my guy, (laughs) my guy. I am sure that you could get all the quality products that you would like for your home made out of leather and not um, human, human leather. leather. <laughs> um, I would imagine that the upkeep on the skin of those pelts, the human pelts that you have created, I could only imagine the upkeep that that would be. Um, it's insane. The, the he smell, made all of this. The smell in the home. Well, I don't know. He he was a tanner, so it's like, mm. yeah. He literally did all of this, and I'll be posting an article in the show notes if you guys want to go check that out. And it actually shows some photos from his house, and it shows the chairs that he upholstered, um, the pair of gloves. There's just some photos of certain things that he made that you can go see. So I'm going to leave some stuff in the show notes. I don't really want to 
post photos like that on the photo dump. I don't know if that would be appropriate or not. So I feel like if I have to ask myself that, that I shouldn't do it because it is real human remains. So I'm just going to leave the article. Go check that out if he would like to see it and you can do that. So continuing on with the investigation, all this horrible, horrible shit is found in Ed's house. And the only room in the entire house that wasn't completely filthy and covered in garbage was Augusta's room because Ed boarded it up after she died and it remained exactly the same from that point on all of those years. His whole house was filthy, but he never touched his mom's room. It was literally the same way it was the day she died. And you know what? That's kind of like if you think about it, and this may be getting a little too deep with it, but the day that she died is the day that his world stopped and started to decay. Yeah. So it's like her room is pristine clean for a reason because she was the, you know, she was the patron saint of his home. And now the rest of the home is just right. That's like the only living in his own hell. Right. And yes, his house, everything in it, the way he boarded up his mom's room, it, it really is just painting this image of Ed Gein's own personal hell. And I think that's, I think it's profoundly horrible and profoundly interesting and profoundly sad all at the same time. It's just, it, this, this one is really one that just fucking takes my breath away. Like it truly does. So after police uncovered Ed Gein's house of horrors, he was taken to the police station to be questioned. And for several hours, Ed wouldn't talk. He wasn't admitting to anything, but eventually Ed made a request for the police He asked if he could have a piece of hot apple pie with a slice of cheddar cheese on top. And that's a very specific request. You know, Ed Gein is in the sheriff's office and he's like, yeah, you know, not the first word will leave my lips until I have my hot apple pie and Wisconsin cheddar cheese. Not the first word. Not the first word will I speak until my mouth is filled with the decadence of a hot apple pie with a Wisconsin cheddar. And once you give me that pie, I will tell you exactly why, when, and how. And when the police gave him this pie and cheese, he spilled everything. Ed completely confessed to the murders of both Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden. And he also went on to tell the police about how he had been grave robbing corpses for over a decade. He admitted to digging up and robbing nine corpses out of the cemetery. And initially, the police didn't believe Ed when he said this. They're thinking he's a serial killer because they're like, how in the hell can one guy go and dig up all of these graves? That's like a lot of work, you know? So the police wanted to test the legitimacy of what he was saying. Right. And they ended up going to the cemetery to dig up some of the graves that Ed claimed to have robbed. And sure enough... Ed was telling the truth about this. They found that all of the caskets had been broken into. Uh, Some caskets were completely empty. There was one casket that just had a crowbar sitting in it that he left in it. Oh, wow. And in the caskets that the corpse wasn't completely removed, there were body parts that were removed. So it was very clear that he was telling the truth. He was by himself digging up graves like all the time. But even with Ed telling the truth about, you know, the grave robbing, the math doesn't quite add up okay. like with what they found in his house compared to the number of people he said he violated and murdered. It doesn't add up. They found 12 separate face masks in Ed's house, but he's claiming to have only robbed nine courses plus his two murder victims, which would be 11. 
So the math just never quite came together. That's why it's believed that Ed Gein murdered more than two people. But ultimately, we will never know if that's true or not. It's just something to think about. He was questioned about quite a few missing person cases around the Plainfield area Mm -hmm. in the two year span or three year span that he did his murders. And he denied having anything to do with any of them. Wow. So, I mean, we don't know. We just seriously will never know, I guess. But the math ain't mathin'. I mean, what could he have done? Maybe, like, while he was grave digging, he just, that's where he practiced taking the face off and maybe brought them back to his house or something? That's the only way that logically it makes sense. But I'm with you there. Like, it's just, it's wild. Because just with the sheer amount of stuff that was in his house, given... He could take one body and probably fashion quite a few things. But I mean, this man literally had a house of human skin and human remains like it's just incredibly Ugh. fucked up. So that's just something that said there are that chill again, bitch. No, there are still people out in the world today that truly believe he murdered way more than two people. It would be on November 21st, 1957, that Ed Gein was arraigned at the Washara County Courthouse. He was facing a charge of first-degree murder in the death of Bernice Warden. And this would be the only murder he was charged with. He wasn't charged separately for Mary Hogan's murder. In spite, really? Yeah, he wasn't. In spite of his confessions, Ed Gein pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, and it worked. Ed apparently was suffering from some kind of psychosis. Okay. He was having visual and auditory hallucinations where trees would talk to him. His defense argued that Ed was indeed suffering from an overlying mental health issue. He showed the signs of someone who was suffering from a form of extreme psychosis. And his defense also took into account that Ed's mental development had quite literally been stunned due to how his mother isolated him his entire life. Right. Because even up until this point, he lived with his mother his entire life till he was maybe 40. And then after his mom died, he just lived the next several years just alone in the farmhouse. So sad. Like He never left that farm. He never went out and talked to anyone or had friends. I mean, he did his babysitting jobs and he would go into town and occasionally talk to people. But he stayed by himself his whole life. And at the time of these murders, like when he murdered Bernice Warden, he was like 50, 51 years old. That just goes to show you, like, the power that brainwashing and, you know, isolation and shit has. Yeah. Yeah. It It is really fucking crazy. Scientifically, from what I hear, it actually trauma to the brain from abuse actually makes your brain smaller. Yeah. I mean, your your body reacts in so many horrible ways to any kind of abuse. It's just the extreme isolation, the weird, just overly crazy obsession with his mom and his need to be around his mom. I mean, it just it's not normal. <laughs> like none of this is normal. So with all of these factors considered, Ed Gein was found unfit to stand trial. He was then sentenced to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, which was located in Wapen, Wisconsin. Today, the Central State Hospital is called the Dodge Correctional Institution. Oh, wow. So the following year, on March 30th, 1958, Ed's farmhouse was scheduled to be auctioned off. But 10 days before the auction, on March 20th, it was burned to the ground. And I think this is a case of vigilante arson. Uh, No one in this community wanted the fame that came with what Ed did. Right. Like, this small town was just thrust into international spotlight because of how awful and how horrible these murders are. And, I mean, you take what Ed Gein did. 
that happening today anywhere would be fucking shocking. But keep in mind, this happened in the 1950s in a very small farm community, like hunting farming community. Yeah. So it completely just destroyed this town. Yeah, so no, all the men got together and they were like, you know what, this is what we're going to do, burn that bitch to the and ground. And they didn't want his house to become a, what's the word I'm looking for, like a tourist a tourist, yeah, a tourist attraction, attraction, basically. They didn't want any of that. Like this, it, it's really sad when you think about how this town was affected like this is what put them on the map technically and they just didn't want anything they didn't want people traveling from all over the world to come see this house where crimes happened that destroyed their lives right so i think it's a case of everyone came together and just decided you know what we're not going to do this and they just took it into their own hands and burned it down and i can't say i blame them for that the cause of the fire was never officially determined but you know Use your brain. So Just wait a minute. Use your brain. So you're telling me that what I said was actually like what happened? Yeah. Well, I'm, holy shit. It's not confirmed. Like the the cause of fire was unconfirmed, but it, it, common sense will tell you that people burned this down. Like the 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 citizens burned the house down. There's no other way. I was like, oh shit! I guessed it, and it was right. His farmhouse didn't have electricity, couldn't have been an electric fire. Right. It's in the middle of Wisconsin in right. the fucking snow in the 1950s. They burned it down. They burned, they <laughs> like that was down. never actually confirmed, but it's like confirmed. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Ed Gein's car was also sold that same year at an auction for $700. It was purchased by a carnival operator who wanted to turn the car into a sideshow, basically. He was charging everyone 25 cents. To come see Ed Gein's car. In the photo dump for this episode, I included a picture of the sideshow that was made out of his car. Okay. It's just crazy as hell to look at. Like, it really is. So go check that out if you would like. Ed Gein stayed in the Central State Hospital for 11 years until the doctors there finally determined that he was fit to stand trial for the murder of Bernice Warden. So Ed's second trial began on November 7th, 1968 with Judge Robert Golmar presiding. This trial only lasted for seven days, and on November 14th, 1968, Ed Gein was found guilty of the charge of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to return to the Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. The next audio clip I have for you is from Dr. Helen Morrison. She's a forensic psychologist, and she actually interviewed Ed Gein during his stay at Central State Hospital. Oh, wow. This audio is sampled from the real crime documentary on Ed Gein. I will leave the link to the full documentary in the show notes if you would like to hear it. It was incredibly well done. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to play that for you now. I was working at that time as a staff psychiatrist and I was covering uh, all the units. And when I was asked to go over to see this, per this person, uh, I went over to see it and I saw Ed Gein. He was not at all coherent. He was such a little person um, that I found it hard to picture him as the person who'd committed all these homicides. He lived there very peacefully. He never caused any problems, never had any, any type of behavioral thing, no type of, 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 I guess you could say, consequence for bad behavior. I received a letter from one of his neighbors who used to be a friend of his. Uh, she was a little girl, and she remembers going over to his house, and he would serve soup and everything. Well, it turned out the soup bowls were the skulls 
of many of his victims, and people never knew it. You know, I did not piece it together when you said that he had bowls out of human skulls. Mm-hmm. But to to know that he was having children coming to his house mm-hmm. and eating out of those bowls. Yeah, no one knew. No one knew. No one knew. <laughs> Man. So I thought that clip was interesting. I definitely wanted to include it. And I especially thought it was interesting, you know, when she was talking about how Ed was just so small and tiny and gentle that she just couldn't believe that he was the man that had done all of these absolutely just barbaric things. He had a very quiet demeanor. And then she talks about how he lived in this town his whole life and he never caused an issue. He never went out and caused trouble. He he would go into town and joke with people. There are several people from Plainfield in that time that still remember cracking jokes and just and seeing Ed and just, and you know right. no one ever imagined that behind closed doors he was decapitating women and hanging them up and gutting them and stealing <sighs> it's, it's it's awful. And I just thought that was really interesting, you know, how psychopaths or whatever word we want to use, they, they can just, their demeanor makes them seem like the most not threatening, not scary person in the whole world. Like you just never know. It, it's crazy. It's Man. so fucking crazy. Man, I just, I wasn't able to say anything for quite a minute because I, I've literally, my jaw has been on the fucking <laughs> floor. Yeah, it's been a minute since we've had a fluff fact. Man, I'm telling you, like... So on July 26th, 1984, at the age of 77 years old, Edward Gein passed away at the Central State Hospital due to respiratory complications caused by lung cancer. He was buried in Plainfield in between his mother Augusta and his brother Henry. After Ed was buried, several people tried chipping away pieces of his headstone as murderbilia souvenirs. Oh my god. And in the year 2000, someone stole the entire headstone. Uh, Yeah. People were wanting to get a hold of that shit. (laughs) It was later recovered near Seattle in 2001, and today, the headstone of Ed Gein now sits in storage at the Washara Police Department. Ed Gein's grave has been unmarked ever since. And that will conclude my coverage of Ed Gein, the Butcher of Plainfield. My God, man. (laughs) You did the damn thing, and I'm glad the damn thing is done. Yeah, I told you. Given that we have the two-parters coming up, and we're doing this whole five weeks of suffering again, I just thought, what better way to kick off two absolutely horrible two-parters by doing a really horrible episode? I just, (laughs) what better way to kick that off, you know? I mean, you definitely did the damn thing, my guy. Well, thank you. (laughs) Blows fingernails off. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely tried, and at the end of this, I don't really have like an insane amount of feedback. I think through the episode, you know, different tangents we've had talking about different things, we've pretty much covered a lot, but this is just a story that absolutely just shakes me to my core. This is something that forever changed American horror media and horror cinema. Like it, it, so much was inspired from this. And yeah. even today, it, it's still something that just has a, like a, a gloomy cloud just 
over the world. Like he truly, he may not have killed as many people as Bundy or, you know, some of the others, but just so barbaric and just to happen seemingly out of nowhere in a farming community of less than 700 people in the fucking fifties. Like this is just, it's like I was saying today, that would be shocking. But you, you look at the time period, this happened absolutely breathtaking, like fucking breathtaking that, that he did this. I just, this is one of those stories that will stay with me forever. And since I am a horror fan and I love Texas Chainsaw and I love, you know, Norman Bates and the movie Psycho. Right. Y- you hear this story and it's like, damn, you won't watch any of that the same again because you really now can't. you know where it where it where it came from. You really can't. And I I'm gonna bring up Leonardo Cianciulli one more time. Like if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. But, you know, it's just so weird how things like this inspire art in movies. You know, Fight Club was inspired by Leonardo's story. Which I didn't know that until like until the, you covered the it. using of human fat to make soap. Right. That's a concept that she birthed, basically. Yeah. Which, so. same way with Ed Gein, he birthed that concept of, holy shit, a psychopath wearing human skin. Because <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's literally what he did, right. you know? and that is... It's, it's just crazy. You know, that's terrifying, but here's also a fun fact for you that kept... It kept replaying as we were talking about the human skin pants that you were... <laughs> the the human leggings, the Lulu leggings that, you know, he fashioned <laughs> out of human skin. Um, the real leg leggings. The real leg leggings. Um, did you know that um, there were witches back then that used to wear... Necro pants. Necro pants, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm see, some, you know about it. I'm somewhat familiar about the necro pants. If I'm not mistaken, like, you know, they made the pants. There was, like, a coin or something sewn into, like, the crotch area or something. Or something was put in them, basically, and then it would be worn and passed down as, like, a charm to bring in money or something like that. I, I, I could don't have, know, man. I could have that completely wrong. But, yeah, necro pants. Ed Gein was on that shit. He was on that shit. So if you don't know about Necropants, that is a rabbit hole that I recommend you all check out because you will be so fucked up afterward. Yeah, it's definitely a crazy one. We may have to touch on that in the future. But I am also very happy to be done with today's episode. This one was fucking horrible, but I'm glad that we got it done. It's now out there. It's out there. And to wrap everything up, you guys, if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our (laughs) (laughs) then you could definitely do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. I am Gore Report. Yay! Oh, Squidward! That was like the first time in a while that he hasn't sounded completely sick. Right. Welcome Squidward. Welcome him back. I need my Squidward. Squidward revival every week. I'm telling you more and more. <laughs> and don't forget our email, guys. GoreReportPod at gmail.com. You totally don't have to, but if you want to send us an email, you totally can. We'd love to hear from you. So, yeah, guys, I really don't have a funny rant to go. <laughs> I just don't. I'm still processing. My asshole is missing. <laughs> they put missing missing asshole posters on the back of the milk carton. Still can't find them. They called the number. Um, guys, please.
Please don't wear skin pants. And please don't go busting up headstones for murderbilia. Please just don't do that. Leave them where they're at. Leave them alone. Yeah, we're just not going to do any we're of that. We're just not going to disturb the dead. No, okay? Thanks. Edgeen, you're done. <laughs> and until next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>